Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey, Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey, Amarillo is sponsored this week by Jimmy John's Gourmet Sandwiches, and Jimmy John sponsors the show through Patreon. If you and your business want to support the show or you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, visit patreon.com slash heyamorello. You can also get in touch with me through heyamorello.com. Stay tuned for more about Jimmy John's. Today's guest is Kent Harris. Kent is a local artist and with his wife, Megan, is the owner of Blue Sage Pottery. Now, Kent and Megan both have fine arts degrees from West Texas A&M. They met there. And they're doing something that's pretty unique. They're making a living as artists, doing the thing they love to do. In Kent's case, it's making beautiful stoneware pottery. I was first introduced to his work when Six Car opened downtown because Kent handmade all of the plates at that restaurant, which were amazing. He sells his handmade bowls, mugs, wine goblets, urns, and a whole lot more through a popular Etsy storefront and at Blue Sage on 6th Street, where he and Megan also offer pottery classes for every skill level. So whether you're interested in art, in pottery, in enterprise, or the therapeutic effects of working with clay, and we talk a lot about that, there's so much to dig into in this episode. So here's Kent Harris. Kent Harris, welcome to the Hamarillo Podcast. Thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you. I know that you are a regular listener of the show, which I appreciate. Uh, and so you kind of know what to expect. And as you know, I always like to start by asking my guest how you ended up here in the first place. So what brought you to Amarillo? So we actually moved here in 1995. Um, my dad was athletic director at Missouri Western University in St. Joseph, Missouri. Okay. And so actually I was born in Asheville, North Carolina. And he was an athletic director there. And then we just moved to St. Joseph and we came to WT. And that's how we got to Texas. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, what was his role at WT? He was the athletic director. director. Okay. For how yeah. long? He retired in 2006. Okay. And so he's worked for me ever since. Yeah. <laughs> and how, uh, how old were you when you made that move? 16. Okay. So that was, that was 16. Tough. Very tough. So you'd grown up in... <laughs> Spent most of your time, I guess, in, in Missouri. Yeah, right? yeah. We moved there. We moved to St. Joseph when I was six. Okay. And so I really grew up there, had a lot of friends, came here, you know, and, and that's a difficult dis- transition when you're 16. Oh, 16 is a tough time but, to move schools, yeah, right, not just like right. states. Yeah. And I, I made a lot of friends at Canyon. It was okay. it was tough and formative and one of those things that, you know, probably ends up helping you forge who you actually are. What do you remember about that time? I mean, do you remember... Him saying, we're going to move to Canyon, Texas. I sure Kids. <laughs> and you're like, where is that? What is that? I mean, did you have any I, idea I, what you're in for? No, I remember sitting at dinner and him telling us he had a brochure, I think, or something like that. I, I remember maybe being bribed with a little bit of guitar equipment or something. <laughs> okay. You know, but I mean, it was, it's where we were going. So we're going, you know, and my brother stayed behind up there. He was already in college. Okay. So he stayed up there. And so, yeah, just come and, and let's do it. And, I mean, it was beautiful and sunny here. I remember it was so hot. That's all. Driving around looking for houses, it was blazing. Oh, that would have been like July, August? It was, like yes. That. Yeah. You know, and I made, I made some fast friends down there, and it was good. How can you compare and contrast, like, Canyon versus St. Joseph or where you oh, grew well, up? So the, I went to a pretty large high school in St. Joseph, one of the older high schools, I believe, west of the Mississippi, Central High School, and it, it, it was a large school, very diverse population. 
I remember my very first day at Canyon High School seeing someone roping mm-hmm. during lunch. Mm-hmm. I'd never witnessed that before. And there were a few other things like that that were probably the cattle lifestyle. I had no clue. I've never been around cattle, horses, nothing like that. And it was just it was just interesting. I do remember going home at lunch the first day and thinking, what happened? <laughs> did yeah. it did it feel like like Canyon is a small town? Yeah. Um like did did that environment, even apart from you know, roping at lunch yeah. at Canyon High School, yeah. I mean, did that feel different and, and pretty unique from what you'd been you know, oh. experienced before? I remember it was just kind of foreign and you're a new kid coming in and there's anxiety that goes along with that. And so, and I missed my friends too in Kansas city, but we all kept up and I ended up after one year at Canyon, actually moving back to Kansas city. Did you really? Mm -hmm. And I ended up graduating up there. Was it because that year in Canyon was tough? It was a little rough. Yeah. You know, I made a lot of friends in the class that were, um, a year older than I was. So when they graduated, you know, then you kind of start over a little bit. I mean, Mm. I had a few friends that were my age. But honestly, I, I had asked my parents if I could move back up there, and they had a friend that had space, and so I just went up there and stayed. Okay. And graduated, lived alone most of my senior year. Wow. It was great. A lot of trust on my parents' part. It was it was good. Right. And I, it takes a special kind of kid to be able to do that, too. I, I mean— I was very responsible looking back. I managed a bank account, I remember. I think it was about $82 a month. Right. <laughs> and, didn't get in any trouble. It was great. So how did you then end up back in this area after going back there for high school? I think in hindsight, when it was my decision to come back, right after I graduated, I was okay. I just wanted, then it was right. fine. I came back. On your and terms. That, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Did you go to WT? I did. I went to WT in the fall of 97. And it was in the fall of 97. I was working at Best Buy. That was the, my brother worked at Best Buy. I got a job at Best Buy. And I was just doing inventory stuff there as I was going to college. And I got really sick in mid-November. Hmm. And it was a life-threatening sickness. I mean, it was it was something that hospitalized me for a number of, I think, a couple weeks. Wow. And uh, it was that was life-changing. What kind of sickness was it? It ended up being acute mono and pneumonia. Okay. Which, and yeah. I, I dropped a tremendous amount of weight. It messed with my equilibrium in my head. And so coming out of that... You know, it's like every time you open your eyes, you just get sick. Yeah. Over and over because I had vertigo with it. So when I came out of that thing, I had to finish some incompletes in college. But I didn't really care all that much about college at that point. I played music. So I started playing more in a band. Maybe just taking a couple hours of college here and there, you know, and that's kind of the way things went for a couple of years. And then when did you start to think long term? Like, you know, you, you came back to Canyon mm-hmm. on your own. Presumably at that point, you could go to school wherever you wanted right. or you could live wherever you wanted. Sure. But you stuck around here, right? I did. I so did. why, I mean, do you remember like a decision, like thinking, okay, this is where my family is. I'm just going to do my thing here. Or did you ever think I'm, I'm out of here and I'll go you find know, something honestly, else? Honestly, I don't. I, all I really, I, I don't remember having any, dis, any even thoughts like that. I just wanted to stay close to my family because we've always been, my parents and I have been close. Best Buy was comfortable. So I kept working there for a little while. And I just don't think I, I was asking myself the right questions like, what do I want to do with myself? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, those are, you don't really think about that, I think, when you're 18. After a couple of years, I ended up meeting my wife at WT. I actually, coming out of the sickness, I took a non for art major ceramics class at WT okay. to, to kind of build my muscle back. And it just seemed, seemed like something that was fun. Because hmm. in high school, I'd taken a ceramics class in, in Missouri. And I liked it. So I thought, well... I'll take that. This, you know, it'll be something to do. 
And I did that and I met her and she was doing her post back at WT. She'd come back from Radford University in Virginia. Okay. That was actually 2001, early 2001. And was there something about that class that captured your attention? Because a lot of people take pottery classes, you know, but not very many people take it and think, okay, this is my thing. This is what I'm going to do. Well, I think the first time that I got onto the pottery wheel, I thought, I really like this. Hmm. And, you know, the, the instruction wasn't great or anything like that. I just thought, I really like this. This is the first thing I actually might enjoy. Like, I just kind of enjoy it. I didn't think about it as a career, anything like that. And I'd always, I think looking back, I'd always kind of been in a little bit of a panic because in high school, we were, we had to take that test that was supposed to tell you what you were going to sure. do. do you remember, I don't know what that's called. And all my friends got 20 different options and I got one. Really? And I tried. What was it? Archaeologist. Wow. Is that not really strange? I end up in ceramics. <laughs> well, because yeah. pottery, thinking, old or new. Oh, yeah. Right? I remember thinking archaeology, huh? Why? Why did you it? Know? Why did it identify that for you? Do you have any idea? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I really tried. I don't know. I just I thought about that so many times. Like, hmm. why on earth would it be archaeology? You know, and and I tried, and I just thought, well, that's anticlimactic. Yeah, that's not going to happen. But so anyways, you know, the WT class got my hands into clay and then I met Megan and kind of fell in love with her and fell in love with clay simultaneously at the same time. And she was going to the University of North Texas to do her graduate studies there. And so I just followed her there, had nothing else going. I thought, man, let's go. I didn't know anything about it. And it ended up down at UNT in Denton. Did you ever like continue on with schooling or? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you, I, that's I, where I, you finished. Yeah. And okay. it's kind of a funny story. As a matter of fact, I was attending class at WT without actually being enrolled in school. Okay. <laughs> that's how I met her. Cause I figured out that the professor wasn't taking role. And so I just showed up and she said, you know, if you're going to be here, you should get credit. Hmm. And that's how that all happened. Okay. <laughs> so she helped me get back into school, and then I really started going to University of North Texas. What was your degree there? Uh, well, so we went down there. It's Bachelor's of Fine Arts in okay. Ceramics. Mm-hmm. Tell me what it was about either ceramics or that pottery class like that really grabbed hold of you. I mean, do you, do you remember? Oh, yeah. Specifically, was it the tactile part of it? Was it mm-hmm. the art part? I mean, you know, I mean, I can think about it now because I have all the terms. and the, Yeah. Like the, but back then. I don't have it, any it, of it the terms. Just, so it was just, it was something that was physical and I could put all my energy into it. You only get better at it by doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, you're not born into it or it's, you're only going to get better by doing it over and over and over. And I was essentially born onto a tennis court. My dad was a tennis coach. Okay. So I played tennis growing up. So thinking about it now, it had lots of those same things like, well, if you do this again and again and again, you'll see yourself getting better. But I didn't identify that until we got to university of North Texas. Hmm. And then I was with two really good professors there, but one that was just outstanding. And he saw, I think he saw the fight in me that I wanted to do this and he identified it and then pushed me really hard. Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I know that art for a lot of people in, in all its many forms has a therapeutic aspect yes. to it. So uh, people who maybe are more visual find a lot of, you know, a lot of peace in painting or drawing or something like mm-hmm. that. And just my theory that for people that, that sort of have that tactile approach, like there's a lot of, 
of peace and meditation and that yeah. kind of thing that mm-hmm. can be achieved mm-hmm. just by doing pottery. And yes. Is, is that something that, that you feel like you're kind of maybe tuned to or absolutely. built for? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the thing that's so addicting about it. Okay. I think that it, the wheel and its revolution, I think, pulls you into it. And it, I believe it pulls you into almost a trance, almost a meditative state. Hmm. Even, I mean, the days I don't make pottery now, I don't feel very good. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's really like it's an outlet. Then it is for really interesting. It's hmm. very addictive. Um, and my students at the store, I see it with them too. You know, they they're the same. Like, boy, we missed class one week, and they are they're not happy. Hmm. They need to get in there. And it's really it is extremely therapeutic. And especially, I've had a few students that have. PTSD from serving our country. And it is incredible what that can do. Wow. You can't think about anything else while you're doing it. I right. Think that's what does it. Because it, it requires concentration, but then there's mm-hmm. also that touch element. And oh, so absolutely. Both of those working in tandem. It's all maybe. going together. And hmm. it, that's, I think that's the thing that you become so addicted to. And then you have these pieces and then you have to usher them through the whole process. You know, they're about 16 steps to getting it finished. And then at the end, it can either be a nightmare or it can be like Christmas. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, so. so. So tell me about after you and your wife, you know, graduated from uh-huh. North Texas and we're trying to figure out what to do there. What, what was the thought process? Well, so we left North Texas and we actually came back here. Neither of us graduated with our undergrad. Well, my undergraduate degree is from WT. Okay. So it's an interesting story because we ended up leaving University of North Texas to come back here. And... um that was partly because I had been pushed by my major professor to, if I wanted to be a studio potter, to get out of school. Just go do it. Okay. You don't need a degree. And that technically is true. And he, I think he just kind of wanted to see me do it. So we came back here. We opened a shop in Canyon. And that was in 2003 as we were both finishing our degrees at WT. So we kind of had free reign of the facilities there. Okay. So we just kind of set up shop started moving on it, going to do shows, started having some success there. And on the success of that, we built, we moved our shop here to Amarillo in 2005 and opened that. Tell me about like, I guess the thinking when you, you start talking about, well, I I can just be a studio potter. Yes. You know, people think, well, I could be a lawyer and like, there's a very definite path. You get hired, you make money, you have clients, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Studio potter is just so wide open. Like, did you think, well, I'll be a studio potter. I may never make a dime, right. you know, or I mean, did you have an idea about this can be a career that sustains us? This can be a business or was it just, this is what I have to do? I honestly think it was just jump out and build your wings on the way down. See what I mean, happens. that is like, I mean, really it. I, I think I was ignoring a lot of things and it was, you know, I, we went to our first show big show in Virginia. And we stayed there for two weeks with my grandmother and we did really well. And I think that's where we both thought, Oh, I mean, we, we could actually do this. I mean, you're kind of ignoring a lot of the big facts of life. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like you might have a house payment one day and all these things. And I think it was good that we were ignoring that, or at least I was, (laughs) because I think I would have probably clutched a little bit, but we stayed loose and kind of built it through time. Now it was not easy. And there is no roadmap to being successful sure. as an artist. And the one thing I've found absolutely is everyone's equation is different. Hmm. The way I got there is different than the way my students might try to get there. 
And back then, I mean, that was before you had platforms like Etsy, you know, where you can Mm -hmm. connect with people all over the world to sell it. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're just relying on person to person. We were trying, yeah, trying to sell the shop. Um, I remember the first day the shop was open in Amarillo. Well, my wife said, you know, we were going to open on October 7th. I just remember thinking like, what? Like I hadn't, I was like, we're going to open. And I was just starting to make pots there, you know, but they had this thing. And so we're going to open it. So we got it going, you know, and then we do some shows and get better at that. And I'll tell you, like, really the first five years were, that was rough. I don't really even like to think about it because it was just try to get to the break even point. Mm -hmm. You know, try, let's try not to lose money. Do either of you have a good business mind? I mean, you've got this left brain, right brain kind of thing going. Is that part hard for you? Easy for you? What? It's so... I absolutely love business. I did not know that about myself. And I believe Megan too. I mean, I think we're both, we actually ended up being really good at it. And probably the the biggest thing that we did was we never got stretched out on debt. Hmm. And I tell my students that all the time, do not finance your business on a credit card. Right. So many pottery friends, they're floating their business on a credit card. We never did that. We stayed on a shoestring and we got it going. And then it starts to pay off, you know, but on about 2000, let's see, I guess it was about 2008. I've been struggling a little bit, you know, I, you kind of figure out, I don't know, in, in art school or, you know, in my ceramics training, they're what, what are called potter's pots. So those are like not really commercially viable pieces that people really want to mm-hmm. buy from you. Like art pieces. Yeah. Or I mean, like, pieces. you know, so let me give you a good example. So in the ceramics world, there's a thing called a Unomi. A Unomi is a Japanese daily teacup. Okay. Right. It's a super cool object. Well, I found myself in 2006 making, I don't know, 80 or 100 Unomis a month and then wonder why on earth they're, why don't people buy these? Yeah. Well, one day you wake up and you're like, oh, wait, I'm not Japanese. <laughs> I'm in, I'm in Amarillo, Texas in America, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and I mean, I couldn't give those things away. And then I thought, well, what, what's the American, you know me, like, what is, what is the American cup? And I thought, well, it's the, it's a wine goblet. That's what that is. So I started making wine goblets. Hmm. And so then you start finding your markets. Okay. Okay. Look, okay. People like these. So how can I make these in a way that please me and please them? And start finding some of those compromises in there that, that work and, you know, just built on that success. But in 2008, my wife encouraged me to go do the American craft council show in Baltimore, Maryland. And that's the largest craft show on earth. And I remember thinking, man, this is crazy. It's expensive, but okay, let's go see. I want to go see how I size up against everybody else. And that's also the market where you meet all these galleries in our country. Thousands of galleries come there and they'll place orders with you for your work. And so I went and it was a great experience. I mean, I got my confidence up that first year, came out of there, did really well, got six galleries mm-hmm. to carry my work. So I had orders for a decent amount of money. And I remember coming home just like, yes, okay. And then went the next year and I got 12 galleries. And then next year, 18, 36, 60. And it got up to 92 wow. accounts. And that was 2013, 2012, 2013, somewhere in there. And then one day, and those were all, they were wonderful. Taught me a lot about business, a lot about dealing with people, a lot about dealing with other people who run their business Mm -hmm. that is dedicated to selling your products, right? And you're selling to them at 50%. 
Well, this one morning in 2013, I came in and that's, I still had an answering machine and there were three messages and I had worked, I mean, nonstop, you know, you're working 90 hour weeks and you're ignoring the fact that you're giving 50% away. Yeah. You might be profiting maybe 30%, something like that. And I hit the message player and each, all three of the messages were negative. It was, oh, you know, we got these pots. They're beautiful, but they're not what we remembered ordering. Or, you know, we're not sure why this is, isn't selling for us. And it just burned me up for a minute. And I just, I remember just standing there and I thought, I don't, I don't think I, something's wrong. I don't think I can do this. And I actually had called my professor at UNT who we had become really good friends by that part. He's really like my other dad. And he said, Oh, you got a job. You gave yourself a job. And it's because I was filling orders. Right. I wasn't getting like the artistic satisfaction of moving forward constantly. I was always having to go back to the catalog. Like, okay, well I've got a hundred of these to make, which was great for my cash supply there for a while. And it did good for us. But it wasn't giving me the thing I really needed, which is that excitement of making sure. new things. And then the pots are losing their energy because it became work and it, it became was less work. fulfilling, I guess. And thank God he was there to say that to <laughs> me. You know, and so that day I actually either sent emails or called the galleries I really, really cared about and told them that I wouldn't be doing that anymore. Okay. And I kept two of them for a while that I still really like. And if they ever want things, I'll give them, you know, I'll send them things. But they respect me. They're like this is the dollar amount. Send us your best. Okay. Great. Tell, tell me how that worked um, just before we go any further. Mm-hmm. As a, a potter who produces products uh-huh. and you're showing those in a gallery. So like if, if you've got a painter and you put a, a painting, you know, mm-hmm. in a gallery, like it's that one painting. Right. You know, people aren't ordering a hundred copies of that painting, yes. you yeah. know. Uh-huh. But for someone who does produce, whether it's the goblets or mugs or something mm-hmm. like that, how does that work for you? Do they see your work in a gallery and they Th- think, oh, I want... 10 of those. Right. Well, they saw it at craft council in Baltimore. The okay. Big show. And that's where they, so you take examples, uh, before the retail section and they place orders off that. So they say, you know, we want six of this, 12 okay. of this. And so it, it was, it was really good. And then they pay for it. And then you send them the, okay. the product and they sell it for who knows what kind of a market, right. you know, I mean, some, I heard some of my mugs were at $90. Wow. And I just thought $90. No one's going because to use. Because they're bought in a gallery. Well, as sure. Opposed I mean, to, you know, in New York City, it's like, sure. who on earth is going to use a $90 mug? Not me. I don't make, mm-hmm. I make pots to use. I yeah. mean, that is a fact. I want them to be used. That's the beauties, the use. And so, that's what I like. So after you came to that realization, like mm-hmm. what changed? Well, so, you know, I think I kind of felt sorry for myself for about two weeks. And then I just thought, okay, well, if they're not selling them, I know it's not my pots. And I think one night I just thought, well, I'll, I'll give Etsy a shot. I tried Etsy back in maybe 2007, 2008. And so I started to push online. I pushed on Etsy, you know, and it just started working. Hmm. And what I found was the market had flipped. The generation had changed. People were not really going into brick and mortars as much as they were. That's why the shops weren't selling. And if they hadn't adapted and built great websites, well, they're the boat was sinking, hmm. you know, and one of my top gallery owners, she owned a store called Appalachian Spring in uh, Virginia. She'd been a gallerista for, I don't know, 50 years. I mean, these are amazing galleries. I spoke to her on the phone. Well, when I called to tell her I wasn't going to sell to her anymore. And she said, well, why? And I said, well, I had this thought. And she said, good boy. Hmm. I remember thinking, oh man, I guess I'm right. You know? And so I just pushed online and that's where it's really gone. And then 
put more time into our store. How did you figure out kinds of products, you know, in balancing that what people want versus mm-hmm. what you like to do, oh, yeah. what's fulfilling to you, what kinds of products to sell, how to price those products, you right. know, because right. you've got to make money on it, but you don't want to sure. sell a $90, you know, coffee mug. Yeah, sure. So sure. How, did, how did you figure out all those kinds of things? Well, what I did is I, you know, initially I found out, you know, like with the wine goblets, people like wine goblets. So I thought, well, I'm going to make a wine goblet that pleases me mm-hmm. and really hope that it pleases them too. You know, and that's how it's gone. I mean, just like with the six car dishes, I made plates that I liked. Okay. And ended up glazing them the way I wished my dream plates would be. You know, and I actually use those plates in my house too. <laughs> Same ones. How many you know, of those did you make for six car? Oh, I haven't asked. Hundreds. Okay. <laughs> Hundreds. Yeah. It was great. I believe there were, I don't know, there were two or three hundred of the large plates and then small plates and bowls. And hmm. it went on for, I think it was 33 days straight plate making. Okay. It was brutal. You know, it was fun though. I love that. I love the rhythm of that. Give me a snapshot then, you know, with, with all the different kind of pieces of your career, Mm -hmm. like where you and your shop have ended up today. So, you know, how, how many pieces are you selling or where are your customers coming from? What kinds of classes are you offering? All those things. Well, you know, like the customers are everywhere now. I mean, it could be on the website. It, Anywhere in the world. I mean, internationally. Yeah, I, I have a ka-ching thing on my phone. So every time there's a sale, it goes off. Okay. And it, it does bother Megan if it goes off in the middle of the night. But I'll still spring up to see where that is because that's usually international. Um, we've gone as far as Russia. Okay. Which is fascinating. They'll pay $95 for a $22 mug to be shipped. Yeah, there. because of the shipping. Yeah, And it's it's okay, I, I suppose. It's those um, oligarchs. And yeah, stuff there, I get, apparently. Love my pots. So, you know, that's, it's anywhere every day. You know, I think usually there's, you know, can be anywhere from three to 10 sales a day somewhere online, which that's great. And that just builds all the time because of, you know, social media marketing, which is incredible and cheap. And then what's happening with Google, the smart campaigns and all that, you know, you just try to stay up with it. Right. And it's fascinating to me. And since I've been working with the WT Enterprise Center, it's been I've learned so much more because I, they pushed me a little bit to keep going with that. Okay. And I like it. So. And the, the culture has shifted a little bit to where there is more of a desire for handcrafted mm-hmm. things or stuff that's not, you know, just commercially mass produced, right. things like that. And mm-hmm. so you've, you're kind of filling that yeah. niche. Yeah. And I think that the, that's the significant thing. I think that people are beginning to realize that the objects around them really matter. Mm-hmm. And that at least my pots, I feel like carry my energy. And sometimes they carry my soul with it. I think that there's some pots that carry that in there. And I th- I feel like people can feel it. Hmm. And I've seen my customers. It's the strangest thing in the store to sit there and watch people walk around 2,000 pieces and pick up the same three pots in one day. You'll have different people. And it's almost like those pots are vibrating or something. Hmm, like like those specific oh, ones it's really are catching. Weird. Megan and I have always said, like, the pots pick when they're going to leave. Huh. You know, there could be a piece that sat there for three years. And all of a sudden, somebody walks in and they look at it. And then 15 minutes, someone else walks in, they look at it, and they, they take it. They love it. Tell me so. about your storefront and, and the classes you offer. Do you have a lot of people that just show up, you know, because it's... It's a well-traveled, you know, path on Sixth Street yeah. that just pop in and yeah, a lot, lots of international traffic okay. because of Route 66. We usually, I, I would imagine, we average somewhere between 
I don't know, 20 and 40 people a day. Okay. Saturday can be quite a bit more. They come from everywhere. But we have a huge local following too. Mm-hmm. You know, people that stop by a couple times a week. I have that. Just to see if you've made something What's new. What's going or, on, okay. you know, and then maybe want to watch me make a pot for a few minutes and talk and catch up. I made so many great friends that way. Mm. I mean, just the most interesting people come. Well, there's characters you know? on the street oh, anyway. Uh, so absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and sometimes they're really surprising and it's great. I've had just about everybody in my shop and I love it. How has it gone offering pottery classes to so people? So that has grown tremendously. And I've grown as a teacher too. I mean, I think about myself back in 2003 teaching my first class. I, I had two students just kind of feeling my way through teaching. And then over the years, you get really good at what to say, when mm-hmm. to say it. It's so interesting to watch people learn a new skill as adults because they have this thing built up generally that says, I should be good at this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hopefully we can get that barrier down. Yeah. Usually. I can usually get that under control. Pretty you got to be teachable. Yeah. And I love how the teaching has evolved because now I send videos out prior to my class simply because I've noticed that it puts them at ease about hmm. what's going to happen. You know, so if they come in, they'll watch it. It's kind of like auto-suggestion, you know, like they know, okay, they they watch the video and they see how my hands move. And then when we get to it, they're ready for it. They've already seen it once. They can kind of go back in their mind. They're not just relying on the live demonstration. Right. And so those classes stay full all the time. And there's 14 people in each class. And it is, I mean, it's like a dream. It's absolutely, it is a dream. And they're the best people. Who are the people that take your classes? I mean, is it? There are about 40 of them, maybe 40 of them that have been coming for quite a while. Okay. So they're regulars. There are some that have been coming for years and they're great. And they have their own home studios. So they come with more complex problems. That's Mm -hmm. my Tuesday night group. I try to usually bring in at least five or six new people every time. There usually be five or six new spots that open up. And the question I always get asked is, you know, I've never done this before. I just think nobody's ever done this before. Right. Of course. You know, am I going to look stupid? No, just have fun, you know? And then usually 20 minutes into it, they're having a great time. It's awesome. Just learn something totally new. That's one thing that strikes me about what you do is that that there are a lot of specialties where some prior experience maybe transfers. You know, if Mm -hmm. you're good at drawing, you might be good at painting. Mm -hmm. Or if you're good with your hands, you might be good learning carpentry or something Uh like that. But I, I don't feel like pottery is like really transitions to anything oh, no. else. No. Like you could be good at any of that stuff and just still be really oh, bad. Absolutely. No, I have had a neurosurgeon in class and that was, it was almost painful to watch. Yeah. Because I mean, that is a person who better be perfect all the time. And it took a while to get him to back it up. It's okay. <laughs> you know. And that's a person who's Relaxed. used to being oh, very, absolutely. very skillful. I had a pediatric pharmacist in my class who I absolutely love but he would take the whole two hours on one piece. Hmm. I mean, it's laser precise, you know, <laughs> I'm not laser precise at all. Wow. That's why clay's my material. Right. I'm a horrible woodworker. I can't cut straight to save my life. I don't want to, you know, it's just clay is one of those materials. That it just, it's going to reveal everything you do to it. Hmm. And that's, that's awesome. I put everything there. In in terms of, of thinking about your business, whether it's, income or time? Like what mm-hmm. do the different parts, like what percentages do they play? I mean, would you say 25% of your business is the classes, the rest of it is making products and 
shipping and all that kind of oh, stuff? Gosh, How do you divide I, it up? Yeah, I have no idea. It is, I, it just, it all goes together and it all works somehow. And it all just keeps getting better, which is great. You know, I have the earn business also. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a whole nother section of it coming in. So I feel like every year, like we're adding some more things in there, getting, cutting some loose weight off and you know, it, it just all works. I don't know. You don't want to look too hard I mean, at I it. No, I just, I just like every day you wake up and you're like, I make pottery for a living. Yeah. Like, and man, this is rocking. There's a Dave Ramsey thing. Maybe 10 years ago, I was driving from Wolfland where we lived over there and he had some tasteless commercial on that said, <laughs> it said, it was like, Hey dad, I'm at school. I'm gonna, I'm taking pottery classes. And it was just a, you know, like a snarky thing. Yeah. About what's going to happen? Go get a real oh, job. Your kids making pottery for their life, you know? And I just thought one day I'm going to call that guy. Yeah. And I'm going to present my financials on there. We're going to do it, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to wait a few years and really snowball that thing. Is it still just the two of you? It, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, our kids, our kids will mess around a little bit and I have help occasionally on Saturdays. My parents are absolutely integral. They're there all the time. They're there at this very moment. Hmm. Unloading one of the kilns. And what do you, when you think five or 10 years in mm-hmm. the future, do you, do you feel satisfied like that you just continue doing this thing, you know, day to day classes mm-hmm. and different clients? Or do you ever think, well, we could grow this into something where we are doing more production or we are doing right. bigger classes? I mean, well, I mean, that's, that's one of the thoughts is that, you know, um, especially when we got in with the enterprise center mm-hmm. and the, the earn business. If you scale this urn business and then you have people making the urns for you, well, that doesn't interest me at all. Right. At all. The joy's all in the making. The money's completely secondary. I mean, it's, if I'm not making it, I don't know. don't want to do it. Right. Anything that gets in the way of the making, I mean, please. And you don't really <laughs> want to train somebody else to do it your way because. Right. You don't get the satisfaction out of that, but it's really yeah. hard to do it your way. Probably, oh, I right? mean, it takes forever. You know, I mean, that's like, we don't have apprenticeships and things like that anymore, like where you can, you can really train help. And that's been a big hurdle in the past. So, I mean, I think I'm very happy selling as much as I can make. Mm-hmm. And that's enough. I don't know. I don't think I could do any better. Okay. I want to ask a couple more questions uh-huh. to, sure. to wrap this one up. I, yeah. We're talking about pottery, which is obviously mm-hmm. a visual medium. Um, and so it's people need to like go to your website to get a sense of what your stuff looks sure. like. But how would you describe your style? I mean, if, if I look at a plate or I look at an urn or I look at a mug and I think, oh, that's one that Kent made. Mm-hmm. What am I seeing that, that is identified, you know, with maybe your style, your taste, your, so your artistry? I think the thing that my pots are most recognized for is the glazing, which is wood ash glazing. And mm-hmm. so that stretches back nearly 5,000 years. Okay. And so I carry that tradition. I was immediately romanced by that because it is a variable. Um, every batch of wood ash is different, and they're exceptionally hard and touchy, I mean, to work with. Okay. You can get bit a lot, and I have been, but they're the most beautiful glazes, and they relate the most to history. They're the first stoneware glazes, and that's what really lit me up. And the other thing about the ash glazing that I like so much is that my friends burn the wood. Okay. So all that love in there. And it's, I've come to the shop before and there's been a sack of wood ash by my door. I just think, man, that's. And you're just like just, blending that with the glaze. Well, so the, it is the glaze. So you take the wood ashes and mix it with cl- little clay to bind it and water. Okay. 
and then you dip the pot in it. Okay. So I think that the others, I mean, my pots are really would be considered Anglo Oriental because it's part of what's considered the leech tradition. And I'm technically on this tree because my professor was a leech apprentice okay. of one of the leeches. And so, um, and they were the most famous potters in Western history and that that's my training. So that's going to show up in my pots. Hmm. If you were to ask a potter, what are these? They'd probably say, well, those are pretty leechy. Is, is it a big but, deal to be like on a tree and identified no, with a style so. like I think that? With that yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm humbled to be on that tree. Absolutely. I mean, I just, I'm definitely a, a functionalist. I love utility, mm-hmm. you know, and I just think it adds beauty to the whole thing that people can use it. It's art for everyday life. Okay. That people can, can feel that energy. You know, that's completely different than something you buy at Target. Okay. So you have, you know, you relocated here, you built your business here. Um, you're a working artist here and Emerald has a really diverse and vibrant arts community. It, it has for mm-hmm. a long time. How does this area, I mean, do you feel that it kind of influences your work or what you do or how you operate your business? Yeah. I mean, is, is, is this something that is unique to having major camp here? Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like the surfaces of my pieces definitely reflect the landscape Okay. And I just like coloring. Yeah. It's just something subtle. I've noticed just like, well, that looks like the Canadian river, Hmm. you know, and sometimes I use local materials like Canadian river clay, but one of my glazes, the birch ash glaze looks just like the landscape here. Hmm. And I didn't intend that. that. I think that those things, you absorb that. I think that here's different because there's, I feel like there's a self-reliance here too Mm -hmm. from all this ranching and things that have gone on. And I think that that kind of ties into the pottery aspect. I mean, people like to do things like that. People like to cook. I make pots for cooking. Hmm. You know, I think that that's part of it for me. And then it's just a very, very accepting community of what I wanted to do. I didn't know that when we started, hmm. you know, this, this place is full of absolutely beautiful people who are so nice, you know, come into the shop and buy pottery. And there is no, there is not a history of pottery here at all. Yeah. You know, where I was born in Western North Carolina, it goes back to the 1700s. Here, a lot of people have just seen Native American pottery in Santa Fe. Okay. I used to be asked that all the time, but I think because we've been here, that's changed a little bit. Hmm. Have you ever thought about, well, it, it would be easier for me to do this if I lived in, you know, a, a place like North Carolina mm-hmm. or a place that was more of a hotbed of pottery? Have you ever thought about that? Or? Originally, yeah, back in about 2007, I thought, man, if I was, if it was just the customers, mm-hmm. you know, but then it's, that's not it. Okay. <laughs> that's not it at all. And you know, the best thing now is that you don't have to live in New York City to be a famous artist. You could live you could live in in Amarillo, Texas. We have the internet. You know, I mean, how many billion billions of people are on the internet every day? Sure. That's where that's where the art market is. Okay. That's it. Things have changed. That's and it's that's liberating for everybody, I think. I love it. This episode of Hey Amarillo is sponsored by Jimmy John's. Now, you might be thinking Isn't that a chain restaurant? Why is a chain restaurant sponsoring this local podcast? Those are good questions. It turns out that Amarillo's three Jimmy John's locations, two along I-40 and one downtown near the ballpark, are owned and operated by an Amarillo resident. Charles is committed to this area. He's involved in the community and he's known for helping out local organizations. He's a great guy and a regular listener to Hey Amarillo, so the next time you need a delicious sandwich... Stop by the nearest Jimmy John's, especially the downtown ones. Great place for lunch. 
Okay, I'm back with Kent Harris of Blue Sage Pottery. Kent, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. As my guest, you get to answer those in as much detail as you want to. Great. Let's start with this one. What's the most underrated aspect of life in Amarillo? I think the landscape. I constantly hear, you know, there's nothing here. It's flat. It's mm-hmm. ugly. It's not. I mean, I thought that when we first moved here. I remember driving down Buffalo Hill. My mother's going to love I tell this story. And we we turned down Buffalo Hill, and she said, what have you done to my dad? <laughs> as was, you're arriving oh, as at we're your coming new in home. the first time. And and I think she and I were both feeling that. You know, because the land, it's so flat. Mm-hmm. But I think over time, you it's so beautiful because the sky is so beautiful. And where we're from in North Carolina and in St. Joseph, you can see a hundred yards. Yeah. Here you can see so far. And so every year dad and I would cruise back to Baltimore or Philadelphia to do the big shows. We both just be dying to get back here. Hmm. And it's, it's the opens, it's the space, right? You know, and clearly the people are just absolutely so kind. You know, we, we'd be back in Philadelphia and I remember one time my dad held a door for someone and they waited for him to let go of it and it closed before they opened it. Wow. And I thought we are in a different this land. This is not <laughs> Texas. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh-huh. What's your favorite Amarillo restaurant? Oh, 575 on Civic Circle. Okay. Sure. We have three children. We love Brian Kelleher and the product is awesome and it's a little bit louder so the children can... Do what they do. Yeah, that's the and original location, bad. and it's yes. it's pretty packed in. It's there. great. Everybody that works there is awesome. Okay, that's our place. That's where we go. Uh, you haven't talked Brian into serving anything from your plates. Or I anything? no, no. We should. should. We should work on that or pint glasses or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does this area have too much of? Naysaying. Okay, I think that that's that's the one thing I wish would stop. I, I mean, it's always good to have opinion. I clearly, have opinions are great. You know, I was thinking about this, like with the MPEV, Mm -hmm. the MPEV was so interesting. And in one of my classes, I had a person that was on the, the MPEV committee with people that did not know she was on the MPEV committee. And I, so we got to, I watched her masterfully listen to all their, (laughs) their ideas about what they thought was going to happen. Right. You know, and it's just like, they're the most ridiculous things and look what's happened down there. It's beautiful. You know, like we're like the downtown is changing here. And I think that that's one thing that Amarillo is really needed, you know, is we, we've got to preserve some of our, we need to preserve our history clearly. Um, and that's one thing that St. Joseph, Missouri, where I grew up has done so well. That's the oldest, one of the oldest towns in the West. Right. And they will not allow certain structures to be torn down because that's part of it. And so I think, I think we're doing a good job. And I think that what's happened down on Polk is so cool. And going to Hodgetown, that's just, I would have never guessed that would be here. I mean, we went in there. I just thought, wow, this is interesting, man. This is so cool. Do you feel like that naysaying is unique to Amarillo or no. is that just a human condition? That's it. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. But that's that's the one thing I think we've got too much of that. Okay. I think people need to really hear the full story before, you know, before they, deciding it's not. Yeah. Gonna work I mean, at it's all. just like, man, I think you're shooting from the hip there, you know? What does this area not have enough of? Definitely the arts. I mean, you know, more public sculptures and thing. I think okay. I think that would be a great idea. I think that there were already some starts on that. Yeah, and more more like these facade grants on sixth mm-hmm. where we're at. I, I think probably be the preservation of 
of some of the structures we have. But I think that's already going. I mean, yeah. I think like the Barfield building and things like that. I mean, look at that. It's yeah. great. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? So, I mean, if, if you're oh, talking yes. to maybe a gallery owner uh-huh. or you're in Baltimore or something sure. like that, and they say, what, what, where's Amarillo? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I do this all the time because people come through. I, I like to tell them about how essentially there weren't any trees here mm-hmm. 150 years ago, just prairie grass. That the things that I didn't understand about Amarillo, you know, I say, you know, it's so different because the concept of space is so different. You know, there, there are families here that, that own 200 square miles. How do you get that? You know, and, but that's that, and that's not a bad thing. That's ranching. I mean, or I, I have no idea how much, you know, 10 square, I remember thinking 10 square miles. I mean, that's, that's massive and that's not really massive. These ranches are gigantic. Yeah. I think that's what I like to tell people. It's like, it's just endless space and people ranch this. That's here. Okay. It's just space. I, I always tell people that because the, especially the European tourists, they always, you know, they're just so curious about that. Like they, they don't know where the land stops. It right. It just keeps going, you know, like, gosh, it takes forever to get here. <laughs> that's, that's one thing that's been interesting. Uh-huh. Anytime I've traveled, you know, to Europe, like Germany or something like that, and people say, oh, we have this family farm, and you look at it, and it's mm-hmm. two acres. Oh, you sure. know, you can yeah. see the end of it. You could walk right across it in about mm-hmm. 15 seconds. Oh, and then yeah. compare that to, yeah, these, you know, legacy ranches that right. are acres and acres and acres. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, someone here recently, I think they were from Connecticut, were telling me about, you know, they they farm, they have a section and that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, man, I mean, there's a person I know close here, 33 sections. Right. They have to get Cessnas up to go check the cattle. And I mean, their eyes were just bugged out of their head. 33 mm-hmm. square miles. <laughs> you know, like, wow, that's so cool. When was the last time you went to Cadillac Ranch? I've driven by it. I've never, ever walked out to Cadillac Never. Ranch. We have never been. I have never personally been out there. Okay. So yeah. you've been here since 1995, 15, yes. Yeah, 20, 25 years? Yeah, it's been a while. Well, it's just not, it's you not. You got to get out there then. I, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, it's worth it um, if only to tell your uh, visitors who are on Route 66 mm-hmm. what it's like. They, why they, they need always to go, out, go there. out there. Oh, or yeah. they've probably been out there already before yeah. they get to you. Yeah. Oh, and they tell me about it and I just kind of agree and just, yeah, yeah, it's super cool. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite coffee shop in Amarillo? That would definitely be 806. Okay. For right sure. there in your neighborhood. Oh, yeah. It is. It, the reason is it's, I love everybody that works there. I go there at a certain time in the morning. If you ever want to find me, it's about eight o'clock in the morning, 806. And it is like cheers for hmm. me. I mean, I see the same three people every day and we can continue conversations and stop them, pick it up the next day. Okay. The coffee's good. You know, it's great. It's just one of those, it's relaxed. I like it. It's it's just different. It's not polished. Jason has done an awesome job. Okay. Courtney and Juan and everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's definitely a unique place. Yeah. Um, you know, and has carved out its own little place in the Emerald Coffee community, yeah, for sure. sure, sure. Um, okay, so I'm going to see if I can identify you on a team. Are you a Pakasak guy or a Tootin' Totem guy? I really... Don't prefer either, but I suppose I go to Toot and Totem more because it's on my way home. Okay. You know. So if you pass yeah. by it, I, yeah, it's I mean, just it's, a proximity thing. Absolutely. I suppose it'll be Toot and Totem. <laughs> okay. I, I thought maybe being from Canyon, sometimes no, Canyon I residents just, are partial to Pakistan because <laughs> that's hometown for them. Yeah. 
No, no. The Mitchells are, are great. So okay. I think we'll go toot and totem. All right. Well, that concludes the eight straight questions. Kent, I like to end by asking my guests to endorse something related to the area. So what is one thing that you would want listeners to know about or to experience? So I thought about this a lot, and there are lots of great things around, but the neighborhood policing okay. that has been going on, that was a genius move by our chief, Drain. And that down in San Jacinto, we've had the neighborhood police officers and that it's so good because that gets out in front of the problems. Mm -hmm. They communicate with us. They communicate with the citizenry. And I think that it just creates such a a much more positive attitude. San Jacinto is kind of a test neighborhood for the concept. I think there's four. Yeah. I think there's four zones for the neighborhood police officers and it's just great. Tell me what it looks like um, on a daily basis. I mean, do you have, do you have cops popping in and saying, Hey, how how are things going? Or do you see them out? Yeah, I see. I mean, I see them out, you know, they ride bikes, Mm -hmm. they walk down the street. There's just two of them over there, you know, but they, they get out, they go into businesses. They come in a lot. We're friends now, you know, and pottery is neat to watch. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's just cool. I just think it's, that's such a great idea because then these people, you know, people see them and know, Hey, they're there and they actually care. Okay. You know? And I think that's great. Kind of removes that adversarial band. Yes. Barrier between them or intimidation. Well, you know, it's like, Oh, the police are there. Something bad's going on. It's like, these guys are just there, you know, like they're always here. Neighborhood police guys, man. You need them. Give them a shout. I thought that was a great move. I really want them to build on that. Okay. Kent Harris, thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And that concludes the show. I want to say thanks first to Kent for being on the podcast. You can see his work at bluesagepottery.com or by searching for Kent Harris Pottery at etsy.com. And you didn't hear it from me, but his pieces would make a really great Christmas gift if there's somebody on your list. Thanks also to Charles at Jimmy John's for being a monthly Hamarella sponsor. This episode of Hamarella was edited, of course, by Angelina Marie. And as always, thanks to my executive producers, Ryan Pennington, Daniel Davis, Corey Burns, Jennifer Callahan, Chriselda, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wes Reeves, Wilson Lemieux, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, and Neil Nossiman. They all support the show through patreon.com slash Hamarello. And if you love the show, you can support it too. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 115. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.